though it may seem to me that's everything the mere idea of you Good afternoon. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and today I'm so happy to have in the studio Sharon Pomerantz. Sharon, thanks for being here. Oh, thanks for having me. Um, Sharon's here. Um, Well, I'm lucky to know Sharon, and she's uh, one of our our fine um, instructors here at the University of Michigan, um, and a a graduate and, you know, much accomplished survivor of the MFA program here. (laughs) (laughs) And so now, now with your first novel out with twelve uh, books, uh, Rich Boy. Um, so now, let the fiesta begin, right, Sharon? <laughs> it's been a busy summer, that's for sure. Yeah. And, 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 uh, yes, and well, very exciting. You, after a long wait, because <laughs> it was this was ten years in the making, Rich Boy. Or yeah, to be fair, it was. Um, eight and a half, probably a little less than nine years of writing it, and then um, about a little over a year waiting for it to come out. So so it was 10 altogether, technically. Okay, mm-hmm. okay. And it sounds like, and too, I mean, I almost said too bad it's not 12, because then there would yeah. be some... <laughs> but no, no please, I would no. that on you. 10 was enough. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and that you've dedicated the book to your father, Julius. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that's why... You also chose to lead the show with Nat King Cole's mm. um, song. Uh, would you like to say a couple of words about that, Sharon? Sure. Well, um, you know, I dedicated the book to my dad because he passed away in 2006. So that was, you know, right as I was starting what became the last draft of the book. Um, so he didn't really live to see me complete it, though. He always believed in me my whole life and I think really, you know, thought I would finish it um, when a lot of other people had lost <laughs> lost that conviction, including me, certainly. Um, and I think the other reason it's dedicated to my father is that the characters I'm writing about in this book, the Vishniak family, um, are in some ways loosely based on my dad's family. And I think... The reason I decided to write about them and felt compelled to is that basically uh, I was a person for many years with a very big, raucous, happy Jewish family, working class Jewish family that got together all on holidays and stuffed their faces and, you know, grew up that way. Uh, And then around 1998, uh, which sometimes happens, it was as if like everybody sort of died at once. My father's whole generation just passed away within about a three-year period. And then my dad, you know, uh, died several years later. Um, And it was more than just his generation, even some of my first cousins and even some of the younger generation. It was just really a couple years where we had a tremendous amount of death. So I went from a person with a huge family to a person on the on the Pomerant side of the family with just a few cousins left uh, that that I'm in touch with so that I missed them all and it made me very aware of mortality and it I think I was trying to recreate them loosely you know some characters more than others uh, in this book so that I could live in a world where they still existed you know yes and could you give us an example of that Sharon like with would it be one of the uncles that came over for the card 
plane, or yeah, would it be? Yeah, well, I mean, the Stasian, grandmother, Vishniak, yes. and the, the and his grandmother, Cece, Cece. Um, <laughs> and you know, some Uncle Frank and some of the other relatives for sure. Um, the rich cousins, to a certain extent, uh, <laughs> and uh, you know, uh, they made quite a splash when yeah, they come into yeah. the house. That for that, rich that in scene. quotations, right? I mean, rich by the standards of the Vishniak family. Uh, and who are, you know, very much a working class family. I think one of the um, one of the reviewers of the book at one point called them a middle class family. And, and I thought, you know, that's that's really not what they are. I mean, you know, we we would like to pretend that there aren't these differentiations, but, you know, they don't have a car. Uh, the father works two jobs. Um you know, and they're excessively frugal. And I grew up also that I think is very connected to my family. I grew up uh, with a lot of people who were very, very intelligent, but didn't have the opportunity to go to college. And they went through the depression and, uh, and they were very careful with their money because the depression made a big impact on them. Uh, and that was on both sides of my family. So I really did grow up with, you know, people that were saving and reusing bags and and all sorts of things like this that are described in the book. I think Stasi is maybe a slightly more pathological example, but um, but I really, you know, have aunts and uncles and, and my own parents who just, they were, this is the frugal generation, which is being recreated now as, you know, suddenly it's hip to be frugal and conserve but um that's really the way that i grew up but with stasia it seems almost it's not pathological i don't think like for Mm -hmm. me i was thinking well it seems necessary it is to a certain extent i'm not sure reusing dental floss is necessary (laughs) believe me i've yeah not not a straight my family too there's there's places where she tortures those boys you know where she just wants them endlessly to be working um but yes you're right i think some of it is that's a really good point it's necessary because these are people living off a very limited government pensions and very small amounts of money and they have ambitions to send their children to college because everyone in my family you know education was very important for my generation you know we all our parents wanted us to go and um so yeah i think i think you're absolutely right that there's also necessity to it but that's a lot of how i grew up i also grew up the sections where the entire family is is you know so angry about richard nixon uh and they're cheering when he finally resigns that was very much my family too. I, for a, as a child, I was actually afraid of Richard Nixon when he would come on the TV when he was president. I actually thought that he was the devil, because of the way my <laughs> my parents used to talk about him, and they would get so worked up. And I thought, you know, as a child, all you hear is my normally fairly calm parents, or like particularly my father was so even keeled, or like spewing. You know, <laughs> they're so angry every time they see this man, and they call him Tricky Dicky. And then he had that weird hairline with the points. So I really did, as a, as a kid, I was really scared of President Nixon and thought that he might be the devil. So um, so some of that is in the book. And, and as I've mentioned in interviews before, I was also writing this during the Bush administration. So some of it, I saw a lot of similarities in, in some ways, you know, the Vietnam War, the Iraq War, a lot of the anger and... and um, the sudden decline in the economy and many things that I, I saw parallels uh, 
between those two administrations. So I think that some of the characters ranting and raving about Richard Nixon were probably representing some of my feelings about the Bush administration, (laughs) to be very honest. You could tap into that. Yeah, quite easily. (laughs) And this is a tradition because it seems like you you were looking at the the writers from, um, correct me if I'm wrong here, Sharon, but the 1850s, uh, Trollope and... uh, And 60s and 70s, yeah, sort of the the peak of novel writing, I think. And and writing so these sort of epic, the mm-hmm. length of the story yeah. covering the, the span of decades. Yes, very much so. And and fast moving yet, but with a serious intention behind it. Mm-hmm. Like you're saying, tapping into the political feelings, like a seriousness of the mm-hmm. time. Yeah, I, I, one of my favorite novels is Anthony Trollope's The Way We Live Now, which of course is really about the way we live now and now and now and now. You know, there's so many parallels to so many different time periods in that book. It was so ahead of its time. It could definitely be the way we live now in 2010 even. Um, and so I love those big books that dealt with money and class and uh, from the 19th century, which, as I said, I think was really the peak of, of the novel. And I should also say that I took a graduate class. Until now. Yeah, until now. Right <laughs> Oh, dear. Bringing it back. Oh, right. Exactly. Um, uh, well, certainly what I think what I really mean by that is people running to the local store every week to get their next installment of books by Charles Dickens and Anthony Trollope and George Eliot and books that really were very plot heavy and left you hanging from chapter to chapter moved very quickly and they're also the great literature you know that's taught now in in our universities but at the time they were also popular entertainment and I really wanted to write a book that was entertaining and fast moving and had a lot of plot and that was a big part of when I came to the University of Michigan for the MFA one of the things I said to myself was I want to spend a lot of time thinking about and studying plot I don't want to spend a page and a half just grabbing the back of an airline seat because there are many writers who can do that and hold your attention beautifully uh, because they write a magnificent sentence and they're very poetic. That's not really me. It's not what I'm interested in so much and it's not really what my strengths are. It's telling a story. It's telling a story story. and psychological revelation and getting in a character's head. Those are more my strengths and I think they were the strengths, frankly, of people like Anthony Trollope and, and... um, you know, Charles Dickens had a certain kind of humor, almost like humor, very broad comedy at times, which I'm not as interested in. George Eliot and uh, Mrs. Gaskell are some of my favorite women writers of, of that time period as well. I just love the writers of, of the Victorian period. And how did you first find them? Was it something that you came to when you were a youth and you were at your local library? Or No, I think it was actually post-college. You know, I didn't major in English in college. I majored in international relations and political science and actually wrote my senior thesis on the Vietnam War. So it was the time period that the book is set in was always interesting to me. The sort of post-World War II through Vietnam, uh, through Watergate I guess, is a very interesting time. And then the 80s, which I lived through in New York. So, or at least I lived through the tail end of them. So um, those were always interesting to me. But I don't think I started reading Trollope and and those guys until I was out of college and was really, I did a tremendous amount of reading post-college. And I always say to my students, college should not be the end. It should be where you get introduced to writers you really like and you 
read and read and read for the rest of your life, hopefully. Because then someone will lead you to someone else. Mm-hmm. So you're exactly. establishing your own yeah. path yeah. forward. And uh, Jonathan Friedman, who taught um, a seminar at U of M, um, my first year in the MFA, it was Literature and Money, which I actually think he's teaching again this year for those lucky students. Uh, I think he's actually teaching Rich Boy, too. But I started Rich Boy while I was taking that class because we read a lot of the big books. Um, I had already loved Trollope before that. He taught the Prime Minister in that class. I had already read a couple others, but Jonathan keyed me into more. And I think at this point, I've probably Trollope's written like 40 novels, and many of them are really, really big novels. And I think I've read most of them at this point. But Jonathan definitely got me even more into some of those writers and specifically talking about narrative and plot and and money and class and how important those were to writers like Trollope and Edith Wharton and a variety of other and people. And you knew that was important to you, Sharon. Like, that was one of your preoccupations oh, my in whole some life. way. Yeah, I think my whole life, really. Um, I don't know what it says about me, but I tend to write, if I look at the short stories I've written and previous novels that, you know, remained in the drawer because I never thought they were quite good enough. I didn't want to release them. I was always writing about class and also sexual dynamics one or the other or both were things you know how kind of uh sexuality it can be about everything but love sometimes and that always interested me in a lot of my stories certainly in ghost knife and um and I think that comes back again in Rich Boys. And, and that was in Best American, Yeah, in 2003. It? it was originally in Plowshares, but then it was published in Best American in 2003. Well, let's take a short break, and then we'll come back, and I'll finally read your short biography in the back of Rich Boy. <laughs> so we'll, we'll do things slightly <laughs> off-kilter, um, but, but we'll take this short break. You're listening to Living Writers today on the program. Sharon Pomerantz. I'm T. Hetzel. We've got Brian Delaney in the engineering chair. We'll be back. John is in the basement mixing up the medicine I'm on the pavement thinking about the government The man in a trench coat batch out laid off Says he's got a bad cough, wants to get it paid off Look out, kid, it's something you did God knows when, but you're doing it again You better duck down the alleyway Looking for a new friend The man in a coonskin cap in a pig pen Welcome back. If you're just joining us, you've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and today on the program, Sharon Pomerantz is here. Her book, Rich Boy, 
with 12 um, from published by 12 just literally hot off the press this end of August right early August 2nd or, or, or okay mm-hmm. well but you were doing um, but the reason why it's now because the term is starting so you're back in town to teach mm-hmm. um, and you were also doing release events in New York City Sharon mm-hmm. is that it? yeah I did a reading at uh, women and children first actually in Chicago and oh, that's um, a great bookstore people mm-hmm. mentioned loving reading it there. was very fun and I have a lot of Chicago friends that came for it and um, I did I actually had a big party party you know uh at the players club right a couple days before the the book came out no that was very fun i am i i'm not very uh cosmopolitan in that now the players club that sounds very exciting it's a fun place it's uh it's actually it was the home of um uh booth not the booth who killed Lincoln, but his brother, who was an actor, a famous actor, and for some reason I'm blanking on his first name, but um, they were brothers, and it's it's the the actor booths townhouse that was turned into a club for theater people in New York and stage actors and um, a lot of several of my friends, a good friend Mayor Ribolo and and also my boyfriend Bill Rickard are involved in theater in New York and they're members so that helped (laughs) but it's a beautiful old 19th century uh, townhouse so that has that helps perfect setting yeah um, especially yes. since there's um, the tuxedo park and the mm-hmm. clubs there and so mm-hmm. lots lots going through this novel mm-hmm. um, especially of with that with that life that that style mm-hmm. yeah very much New York in the, the 80s yeah Oh, well, okay, let me read the short biography, and then would you mind reading a piece from the novel, Sharon? Sharon Pomerantz is a graduate of the University of Michigan's MFA program. Her short fiction has appeared in numerous journals, including the Missouri Review and Plowshares. Her story, Ghost Knife, was included in the Best American Short Stories 2003, and Shoes was nationally broadcast on NPR's Selected Shorts. A four-time recipient of the Hopwood Award, she currently teaches writing at the University of Michigan Ann Arbor. And for more information about the author or Rich Boy, go to Sharon's website, SharonPomerantz.com. Also, just as a quick side note, Fiction Writers Review is actually doing a book giveaway of Rich Boy, um, FictionWritersReview.com. So if you go to their website, um, you can... You have a chance to get a book. And if you're out at Festifall, if you're a freshman wandering around the tables looking for stellar organizations to join on Wednesday, I think this, this I hope you come by WCBN because we'll have two signed copies of Sharon's Rich Boy book at our table. So come and get them. <laughs> And be a part of WCBN. <laughs> Sharon, it's you know would attest to it. It's a it's it's a it's fine a great place. place with some very smart people hanging around here and very attractive people too. Not only smart but very good looking, <laughs> which ultimately necessary for radio, yeah. right? Okay, Sharon, now let's get back to your novel, Rich Boy. Okay. Will you set us up a little bit for the piece you're going to read? Sure, sure. This is from the very beginning of the novel, and Robert, my main character, Robert Vishnik, is about uh, 13, and 
Uh, it's a description of something called Cousins Club, uh, which is a common thing or was a common thing among particularly East Coast Jews um, who were first and second generation. Usually, you know, the family would come over in the beginning of the 20th century and then each generation would want to keep up with their cousins as they grew. They usually would all live in the same neighborhood and then scatter as they got older and they would have cousins club. And in my family, as I know in many other families, because uh, many people have talked to me about how excited they were to see cousins club in a book, um, they usually, the men played cards and the women gossiped and ate, you know, and then eventually everybody got together and ate more. <laughs> it was a lot of eating, uh, some card playing and gambling and, um, you know, just sort of like an excuse to get together once a month. And so this is a this is Robert's parents who are their names are Stasia and Vishniak. And Robert's father is never referred to by his first name. He's always referred to just by his last name, which is Vishniak. Is there a reason for that, Sharon? Because I looked back to make sure I had no a lot of people had trouble with that, too. Um, yeah. I like it, though. Like it's that. just all the men I knew growing up, this sort of working class thing. They all had nicknames and many of them were called by their last name. And so I thought I kind of liked I had a backstory as to why everyone called him by his last name. And I, I had it in originally and I took it out because I thought, you know what, let's just have it be that I think in a lot of cultures, men just call each other by their last names. So um, so that's why Robert's parents are Stasia and Vishniak and his brother is his little brother is Barry um, and so this is they've never had Cousins Club before because they've never had their own house before they recently bought this row house in Oxford Circle uh, and they're about to host for the first time so that's that's this section I'm reading with so many cousins Cousins Club was an event to be dreaded but not ignored Every few months, his mother and her two siblings and most of their many cousins, and sometimes all the elderly parents as well, got together at someone's house. The system that determined who hosted was part economics and part caprice. Some had it twice within a short time. Others were overlooked completely. Eventually, though, when Robert was 13 and Barry 8, the wheels stopped on Stasia and Vishniak. His mother made the announcement at the dinner table that February. The Cousins Club is here next month, she said. Even the rich cousins, back from their fancy winter vacations, are coming to look us over. When was the last time we had it? Robert asked. He could only remember his parents leaving for other people's houses, dressed in their best clothes. They returned late at night, often waking up Robert with their fights. The evenings were not without controversy. We've never had the club, Stasia said. When we lived with Cece, we didn't have to. Now we have our own place and we can't escape. It's a family obligation. Jesus, Robert's father said, suddenly pounding his hand on the table. The boys and their mother started in their seats and then looked at him, waiting for some additional verbiage. But he went back to his mashed potatoes. What does the club do, Ma? Barry asked, hoping for special passwords or time spent in a treehouse. They play cards for money. Stasia said. Too much money. They eat like pigs, his father added. Like termites, he paused. They eat like the Russians are at Camden Bridge. Great, Barry said. It's not great, <laughs> Robert replied, five years older and more in touch with the general sentiment. 
but he was desperately curious to meet the rich cousins, two of his grandmother's nephews who'd been in the junk business, barely making ends meet when the Second World War broke out, bringing with it the incessant demand for scrap metal. What would prosperity look like on the face of a Kupferberg? How, he wondered, were these cousins made? Thanks, Sharon. So that's that's actually that part of the book, I think, is the first real moment where we see Robert um, kind of admitting to some sort of very strong curiosity. Yeah, sort or of fixation it. almost, yeah. Well, I think he gets it from his mom because she's so concerned with money. And I mean, the main reason she's so nervous for these people to come over is she feels judged. She feels like the rich cousins live this other lifestyle and they're going to come in and judge her row house. And so the way that she responds, which is, I think, the way that a lot of women in my family responded when anyone came over is to clean like a maniac. Um, <laughs> so there's a line where you say the the women were at home in Oxford Circle, but they were scrubbing the floors as if in worship. Yeah. I think. Yeah. Was... Well, I think it's a first generation American thing. You know, I think a lot of them are children of immigrants who had huge families and often operated businesses too. Sometimes in like my grandparents had a shoe store in the front of the house on my mom's side. And there wasn't so much time between feeding the kids and working in the store and dealing with this huge household uh, without technology, the modern technology, to do stuff like spend a lot of time cleaning. So I think their children became obsessed with it. I, all my, my mother and all her sisters and my father's family, they all, I mean, you could just, I used to say about our house, you could throw the food down on the kitchen floor without the plates and you'd be fine. I mean, it was so clean. But no one ever had a picnic there on no, the floor, right? No, no. no. Your, your, mom know, wouldn't, and, your mom wouldn't allow it. Yeah, and you sure as heck wouldn't want to do that in my apartment. So, you know, I, I'm not the cleaner that my mother was uh, or my aunt's. Well, you have to write sometime, Sharon. <laughs> you know, you have to carve out that time for writing. Right. right? Um, well, I love how as you read this part, since there was dialogue in a large section of it when we were at the table for the big announcement, mm-hmm. it's your voice changed with each of the characters. And you really there's um, it seems like there's a tenderness in, in you embodying these different characters. Mm-hmm. Um what did it take to because you 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 mentioned earlier that some of them are are built mm-hmm. on pieces of your dad's family but what well at first of all, I should say that I I also have been a playwright at times in my life yeah. so I think I'm automatically try to give each character a little bit of a different voice when I read but um I think also that um when writers talk about their characters and sometimes they sort of set their characters up as pawns on a chessboard that they can torture. I mean, there are writers like that. There are books like that. I'm not going to name any names. But oh, why not? Who? Yeah, why not? <laughs> I think Jonathan Franzen, for instance, in the corrections, I think, you know, he kind of tortures those people and he seems to enjoy it quite a bit. I didn't feel that he loved his characters in that book. Um, and I, I Does it take love? Does it? Well, in my case, you know, a lot of my characters are behaving really badly. And yet I love them. I mean, to me, to say that a writer doesn't love their characters, it's like a parent not loving a child. You know, I love them all. You spend nine years of your life with these people, so you should love them, even when they behave really offensively, as they do sometimes in this book. Because, for example, Barry has many wonderful qualities, but he's also 
selling drugs to very desperate people at different mm-hmm. times. Yes, yes. Uh, Barry is, I think, what we would call a piece of work. You know what I mean? He can be very good to his family. And, well, I, you know, I think I say it in the beginning of the book when he's a child. You know, he he could give you the shirt off his back, but he's also wants what's his. And you never know which one you're going to get, the guy who, who wants what's his or the guy who would give you the shirt off his back. And he is a drug dealer for part of the book, and he's a retail stockbroker for another part. And some people would say that not so different. <laughs> oh, that's true. That's um, true. I hadn't really thought know, of that. So, but, yeah. but, you know, he's he's uh, you know, he's a complicated guy, um, even. His, you know, some of his relationships are extremely tortured and complicated. And, you know, what I wanted to also mention, because we were talking about um, a little bit earlier that you had the interest in the Vietnam era, and that's what you had done your undergrad mm-hmm. thesis. And then, um, and now upcoming, because you have two events coming up, and I'd be remiss if I didn't start to mention them to give people a chance to come and see you in person. Um, so on this Sunday, September 12th, you'll be at the Carytown Book Festival. Mm-hmm. Um, 3 p.m. 3 p.m. In the concert, the Carytown Concert Hall, the, the, the building. I think there's also a tent going on, but... Okay, but inside the building, mm-hmm. so that okay, and you'll be on a panel for historical fiction. Yes, they're looking at Rich Boy as a as a work of historical fiction, which I think technically is as strange as that is to us at our age. But yes, it's nineteen forty seven to nineteen eighty seven, so it's thirty years now. You know, it's technically historical fiction. That is kind of crazy, though, isn't it? Because who are the the other panelists? Are they also going to be talking about a similar time period, or are they no, actually? No, I think there are other time periods, probably more tra- what we think more traditionally of historical fiction. And was there a large component of research in the book then? Oh, Sharon? was there ever? In your acknowledgments, it seems like there was. <laughs> I had to buy. I know. Well, I've got it. my acknowledgments are the length of a short story. Uh, I had to buy a second desk for all of the books and papers that I was using to try to sort of, I I maybe over-researched a bit. I took most of it out in the end, but I did a tremendous amount of reading about the Vietnam War period, about the 70s in New York City and and Nixon, although I remembered a bit from childhood, um, and also especially about things like architectural history. And Robert's a a real estate lawyer, and I really felt like I, I wanted to understand an awful lot about real estate law before I wrote any scenes in which they were having discussions about development and and the different things that, you know, that real estate lawyers deal with. And they're in, I, I'd spent some time around law firms, too, when I was a shoeshine girl. So, uh, so that helped me, too, a little bit to kind of get into the what it's like in a New York City law firm. Well, which reminds me, I think we should do a little bit more about your biography okay. when we come back okay. and get this shoeshine girl bit in, too. <laughs> um, so we'll take a short break, um, and then we'll come back. We'll talk a little bit more about your writing, your life and your writing life. Um, today on Living Writers, Sharon Pomerantz. I'm T. Hetzel. We'll take a break and be back. <laughs>
Back. If you're just tuning in, you've got Living Writers on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. I'm T. Hetzel, and today on the program, Sharon Pomerantz is here. Her novel, Rich Boy. And as Brian Delaney so kindly told us, is it's up all in the, the windows at Borders Bookshop right now. So um, yeah, go and go and get your copy. And most importantly, Nicola's <laughs> bookshop will be hosting a reading and signing Sharon next mm-hmm. week. Tuesday the 14th at 7. It's in the Westgate Shopping Center. Nicola's and Nicola's has been really really supportive of the book pretty much from the moment that, you know, the band galleys were out. So Bill Cusimano and Nicola's has been was just so wonderful and and Nicola as well. So I'm really excited to be there. Didn't he review it too, Sharon? He it, actually oh no. wrote a really wonderful letter to my editor John Carp uh, at twelve and twelve loved the letter so much that they excerpted a little piece of it. Yes. Yeah, on my on their website. Um and he just was so excited about the book that he just wanted to tell John how much he loved it, which meant so much to me because I've never met him before. I've since introduced myself to him, but he lived through the 60s and I think he really connected. As I think Keith Taylor also wrote a little bit about that in his piece. I, I've been, I was so nervous about people who actually lived through that time period telling me that, you know, I'd hit a little too hard on all the signposts or that I'd, you know, I hadn't really captured the era. And in general, I've had so many people, you know, who were in there, I guess, you know, their 60s who lived through the Vietnam War period and the draft uh, tell me particularly that they loved the part about the draft lottery, that they remember very vividly what they were doing while they were waiting for their number to be picked. That seemed like a very vivid scene and oh, and, and how Robert got through it with, with Gwendolyn and, mm-hmm. um, yeah. You're safe. You're safe. Or well, not. I just, you know, I, re- I did a lot <laughs> of reading about it and, and I was almost incredulous, even though I knew that it had actually happened. It just seemed so crazy to me that sounds... people would be just watching TV yes. and there would be this this politician. I think he was a senator standing there in his, you know, charcoal gray suit, picking people's numbers to determine on television whether they would go to Vietnam or not. Their birthday, right? Yeah. If so it was the day of your birth. Yeah. So um, well, you, you were assigned a number based on the oh. day of your birth, and then that number was picked. There was a lot of controversy because some people said that, I think, uh, winter birthdays predominated. There were more people, I think it was, with winter birthdays, and so some people thought maybe it was rigged in some way. The irony was, I mean, as much as I've been Against saying... poor Capricorns yeah, and Aquarius. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, you know, as much as I said these things about Richard Nixon, uh, just to, to, to his credit, I think that he came into office and felt like um, the educated kids, you know, were the ones that were getting out of the war. They were going to college, they were going to the Peace Corps, and it was working class kids that were being shipped off, and especially minorities. And uh, not that I think Richard Nixon, you know, had such warm feelings towards minorities or poor people, but I think that he did, he was the first one to sort of say, we need an e- we need a more even system. And he got rid of graduate school, I believe, as a deferment, and he got rid of uh, the Peace Corps. 
as a potential deferment, or I should say he put in a new Peace Corps director who made it much harder to get into the Peace Corps unless you had a really specific skill like engineering or road, you, know, you had experience in planning or some something that could really be a real skill as opposed to just I majored in French and I need to get out of the war, so send me abroad. Um, and, you know, I, I that was something that I actually thought, you know, that I agreed with, with, with Nixon, that it did seem like it was unfair, but... And you actually give that to a character, like a, a pers mm -hmm. that perspective to one of the characters mm -hmm. to say, I think maybe Kriya. Mm -hmm. So, so that's, so, so that's one of your, your mm -hmm. um, studied opinions from reading this era. And so you gave it to a character yeah, to actually I voice. I can't remember. Oh, it was, you know who it was? It was the guy who's come back from the Peace Corps who basically <gasps> says to Robert, oh. you know, you're never going to get in if you're a married couple. You're never going to get in if you're not, if you don't have these things because Nixon made, is making it difficult. And I, I don't think he was pleased about that either. I it was Jerry, was, right? Yeah, <laughs> like I don't think, yeah, words. yeah. The one, the guy, yeah, the one that looks sort of like a bug. Um, <laughs> a the, praying mantis. That's yeah. what I was thinking of. I don't know why. <laughs> but, you know, I, no one in the book except the rich people really are too crazy about Richard Nixon. I mean, yeah, Korea and her family, I think, see him more positively. Um, and of course, you know, in, in retrospect, from where we sit now, we've had certainly worse presidents. <laughs> so now we see, well, he was a smart man in, in plenty of ways. He was just a lying dishonest person but but we've had those too you know um so at this point maybe we're quite a bit more jaded than people were in the 70s and i can understand why richard nixon's been rehabilitated a bit you know oh it's, i hope your mom's not listening <laughs> <laughs> my father is rolling over in his grave. <laughs> I say Julius, remember the book is dedicated to you with love and um uh but um well let's see. So so I so we've got this these two upcoming dates and mm -hmm. you also have um one in uh, Detroit and also with the JCC. Yeah. Should we I'm go doing, ahead and mention that yeah, right now? If for people a go to my website, which is, um, you know, www.sharonpomerantz.com and, and my name is spelled A-N-T-Z. I think a lot of people get confused. There's so many spellings of Pomerantz. Um, uh, and they just click on, um, I think it's appearances or whatever the uh, people are sophisticated. Yeah, They'll whatever get it is through on it. There. <laughs> and it lists all of the different appearances. But I'm doing uh, five or six different appearances through the National Jewish Book Council. And three of them are actually one is in Ann Arbor, one is in, I believe, West Bloomfield, and one is in Oak Park. So, And those are pretty soon, too. Those are actually in November. Oh, those are in November. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but the... the Nicholas and and the Carrie Town Book Festival are really they're in the next Sunday and week. Tuesday. Yeah, Sunday and Tuesday. So they're definitely uh, coming up fast. And oh, and I am doing an appearance in New Jersey uh, on the twenty third of September uh, in northern New Jersey in, in I think it's West Caldwell, um, and that's on my website as well for people in New Jersey who might be listening to this. Yes, yeah. Um, and Atlantic City figures into Rich Boy. Mm -hmm. There's a family trip. Yeah, and Atlantic City is really uh, is South Jersey, and I'm going to be appearing in Cherry Hill, which would be closer to that. <laughs> oh, is our is Brian from Cherry Hill? Excellent. Um, so yeah, so I'm going to be at Cherry Hill, um, which is the closest I'm getting, ironically, to Philly. I'm not actually thus far. I may be doing something in Philly eventually, but. 
but for some reason I haven't actually ended up doing anything. Well, hopefully Fair. someone listening will <laughs> will make this happen because that seems only right. It is very strange, but I, there has been a lot of PR in Philly and I've gotten so many lovely letters from people from Oxford Circle where Robert and his family are from. Um, it's definitely a neighborhood that has never been written about before. You know, people compare it to Philip Roth's Newark. You know, it's in many ways a quintessential working class neighborhood, but it really exists and it's it's changed now. Yeah, it's what it. is it like now, Sharon? Well, it's what it was, you know, to my family, uh, which is, you know, now it's filled with the different, different generations of immigrants and first generation Americans who now are you know, Pakistani and and um, Asian and, you know, lots of different groups there, um, Greek. And it, it's a different neighborhood than it was. Because but, when you describe it in the lovely, like the opening moments of the book and you say there's one Italian family that from Italy, so they mm-hmm. actually didn't know where they were buying. Like right. they were the only ones yes, that were different yes. in the whole. In the, in the <laughs> 60s and 70s, this was all row houses. It still is all row houses, Oxford Circle. And it's divided by the Roosevelt Boulevard. And on one side, you had the Jews. And on the other side, you had the Catholics. And the Catholics sent their children to parochial school. There were several big parochial schools. And the Jews mostly public school. And um, yes, and so in in the opening to my book, there's like one random Italian family that wanders over to the wrong side and buys a house. But uh, at one point in this, at its peak, which would have been in the 60s or 70s, um, many people say that Oxford Circle, and specifically, I should say, Northeast Philadelphia, um, uh, which is actually the name of a neighborhood. It's called the Northeast. It sounds like I'm describing the entire eastern seaboard, but it's actually Northeast Philadelphia. Uh, was the largest concentration of working class Jews in America at one point, I believe. It certainly vies with New York and other places. In like 60s and 70s. In the 60s and 70s. And the numbers are put anywhere from 120 to 160,000 Jews. And specifically, you know, like I said, working class houses cost about $8,000 back then. And it was a lot of postmen and meter readers and government workers and uh, truck drivers and, you know, et cetera. So it was a very particular kind of neighborhood. And um, and you mm-hmm. actually deal with that in in the book in a way, too, Sharon, where you have um, Robert moving from like his roots there mm-hmm. um, in this working class neighborhood and then um, eventually coming in contact with Kriya and her father and mm-hmm. and um, Jewish people that have chosen not to live and yeah. who are very wealthy and are yeah. not in areas um, work mm-hmm. the working class neighborhoods. Yeah, they're, the, they're sort of more the um, the German Jews of New York City, who you know the sort of what we think of as the Park Avenue Jews, um, where uh, you know to get into a lot of those buildings, you know there was one Jewish apartment in the exclusive buildings on Park Avenue. And now I know that from reading your yeah, book. <laughs> yeah, particularly like 740 Park Avenue, especially and. The Jews that were let in were the ones who didn't act very Jewish, and they tended to be German Jews who were more, you know, quiet, and they'd been in the United States a lot longer. Um, you know, that there's a, definitely a pecking order in the Jewish community, and you know, the with immigration or with yeah, with immigration and and culturally, just you know, the 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 Austrian and Germans always, I think, they got here first, and they sort of saw themselves as the the upper class um and then the eastern europeans and um were sort of looked at as as they came later and they were less assimilated and uh, so kriya's family is a you know really really assimilated family to the point where 
their Judaism is just not relevant to them in any way, shape, or form. You know, other than for her father, you know, it almost kept him out of tuxedo. But beyond that, it's just something to move past. Whereas for Robert, it's a point of real identification. And so that's that's a real clash between them in their marriage in the book. And to hear you talk about it, Sharon, I wonder if this is like the the different the the communities and and just what you you just mm-hmm. like you just know all of these interesting things about these different groups and 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 the the hierarchies of it or how it mm-hmm. works i mean is this something that you will maybe continue to go mm-hmm. to this font for stories is this where the source is for you well or? i definitely think that i'm not done with Oxford Circle and Northeast Philly because it was such a specific neighborhood and and like I said I've been getting these amazing letters from former residents who are so excited to see that neighborhood written about and it was a very specific sort of place um, and because also I think that the working class is is you know that was what I was raised in and um, and spent my whole life having people assume that I was rich uh, when my father worked in a warehouse you know and some of that is you get Oh, aren't all Jews rich? But, you know, depending on where you go in America. But but also, um, you know, just I had certain pedigrees that made me seem one way when I was, in fact, from something very different. So those are and really... And was that intentional or, or... Well, no, I don't think... I never lied about who I was, certainly. But, um, but just, you know, my parents worked really hard. My parents didn't live in Oxford Circle. The rest of our family did. Uh, we, My mother wanted to live in the suburbs for the schools. So we, every... About every three or four weeks, we would drive to Oxford Circle, but we lived on the main line, which is really different. The main line, yes, because mm-hmm. that's near Villanova. That's Yeah, that is Villanova. Oh. Okay. In that area, you're absolutely right, and that's a wealthy, and, a much and wealthier... And on the Catholics again. Um, right? Well, or... it's mixed. It depends on which community. It's Bryn Mawr, Villanova. You know, I was in Lower Marion, and um, there were definitely Jews there, but well, a lot of Jews, but wealthy Jews and not row houses, big single homes and mansions even. So uh, we got a little tiny house on the edge of that neighborhood and uh, fixed it up. And my parents were really fortunate and they went, they made huge financial sacrifices and my dad worked overtime and we were very frugal and it was all so that I could get into this great school. Um, so, and, and was that um, uh, pri- like early schools, like primary Sharon or I high school? Second or? grade through high school. And then I got a scholarship to college and I went to Smith where I encountered a whole other level of wealth. I had friends literally who brought their horses with them to school. Um, and then I moved to Manhattan where... I was, you know, living in in housing in neighborhoods where there were, you know, millionaires. I mean, the story of Manhattan is everybody shoved in side by side. But if you would have heard my neighborhood, you would have thought I was doing very well. But the truth was, I was living paycheck to paycheck. And, and what was your neighborhood like? What I was on the of- Upper West Side um, in a doorman building, a very fancy doorman building that I got into because my friend's mom, my then roommate and very dear friend, uh, Ricky, her mom was nice enough to pay the security deposit and pay for us to get into this really nice building. Oh, so, so was that a room, like a friend from Smith? It or? was a friend actually from a year I did in, in Israel, but from college. Oh, um, so you went to Israel I was too. in Jerusalem, yeah, 1985, 86. So I think people here, Lower Marion and Smith College and doorman building on the Upper West Side, and they make assumptions about me that are not true but you know that's the story of lots of people in america you know not not tons but certainly enough people uh certainly people we know too you know where they start out in one class and they end up 
through education or whatever. I mean, there is the American dream is a reality, not for so many of us, but, you know, but for a small percentage of people get to live better than than their parents did. Um, I think it's fewer and fewer these days. But that was definitely the I have a much easier life than either of my parents, I think. Um, when you were in the Upper West Side, when you lived there, did you take a break to go to Israel for the year, Sharon? Or um, did it you... was during college. It was my junior year abroad. Oh, yeah. okay. And then after you then graduated, I moved. Yeah. then you moved. Then I actually moved to Boston for two years where I was a shoeshine girl. And then I moved to New York. Oh, okay, so that was in Boston. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And so what so how did you decide to do that? Like what 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 was how did that opportunity that door open? Um, it was just, you know, I wanted to have do something part-time so that I could I make my own hours so that I could write and um I didn't want to work with food and I didn't have bartending skills. How did you know that the writing was what was going to be something that you put first? Because with College, undergrad, it was, yeah. you said political science. Well, but so. I was writing plays and I took playwriting classes and I had been writing fiction in high school. And I, I was writing for, I'm embarrassed to say it because it's certainly taken me a long time to get my first book out. But I've been writing for, you know, probably since I was a teenager. What did you write back then? What was well, the... I. You know, I was writing short stories. I went to a great progressive. I mean, there's a reason my parents killed themselves to get me into Lower Marion High School. We had great creative writing teachers and and the arts were really stressed. And, you know, it was really at the time one of the top public high schools in the country. So we had I took a lot of creative writing workshops even then. And then I won this scholarship when I was in 10th grade to something called Pennsylvania Governor School for the Arts. Uh, which was an amazing state-funded program. I think it still exists, but I'm not completely sure, uh, where you went to the campus of Bucknell University for five weeks and worked with these amazing writers. And um, there were five art forms, and I was there in fiction, and there were poets and, and you know dancers and musicians and photographers. And we went through this really rigorous statewide search for talent. And if you got in, you went for free, which was great because for the first time in my life, much like here at the MFA program, it was like those are the two experiences in my life where how much money you had didn't matter. It was about how much talent you had. And if you got in, you got funded. And so those have been my two experiences with actually getting to meet other people whose parents didn't go to college and who had the same kinds of ambitions that I did. Um, I met a few of those people at Smith, too, particularly my friends that I met washing dishes in the kitchen because I did that like Robert does in my in my book. I washed dishes uh, in college. Uh, but it was really in arts programs more than anything that I found a level economic playing field where it was about merit. And uh, governor's school, I was 16, and it was from that moment I think I knew I wanted to be a writer. So... Because that was also something that somebody else recognized in you as well. Yeah, and we were just spending, we were teenagers spending hours in workshops and writing stories. And you would have thought we would have hated it. It was like more school because it was the summer. But we loved it. It Ah. was great. It was like more, more, more. (laughs) Perfect for fall term's beginning. Mm -hmm. We're going to take a short break and we'll be back. You've got Living Writers, Sharon Pomerantz, her novel Rich Boy. We'll be back.
Welcome back. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. And today on the program, Sharon Pomerantz is here. Her novel, Rich Boy, with 12, the publisher 12. Um, and they're based in Boston and New York. So it's kind of, maybe they should get also a little locale in Philly and have like a nice... Yeah, I didn't even know they were in Boston. I thought they were just in New York. I don't know what made me say that. I hope I'm not... Might be. It says underneath the logo, really? but it could be that... Oh, I'm happy to hear that. Okay, you taught me something today. I'm used to. I was used to going to their New York office. So, great. Well, let's. Hello, Boston. Yeah, (laughs) Um, love Boston. It's one of my favorite cities. Yeah, and so and the the shoe shine. So you were able to make your own hours. Hours, and I I met a woman who had this little business, and it was mostly women. Although there were a couple men in the book. Of course, I create a shoe shine girl who works. Sally. Sally, who works. It's only actresses and performers, and it's only, you know, really drop-dead gorgeous women. But the one that I worked at was not that. Uh, there were plenty well, of... I don't see why not. There were... Oh. There were plenty of... You know, there were some men, too. And, and uh, we made our own hours, and it was really... It was a great job. It was a lot of fun. And it also was a perfect writer's job because I was on the trading floor of, at investment banks, Solomon Brothers and Payne Weber and Lehman Brothers and lots of other places. And I was also in law firms. And so I got to really, you know, you're almost anonymous. I hate to say it. Uh, and you can just go into people's offices and listen to their conversations and you get to really see what a law firm's like. And a lot of people told me their problems. So I got to know a lot of what was going on. Um, you mean they would, they would actually like, like the doctor was in, in mm-hmm, a way, as you were mm-hmm. shining their shoes. Yeah, it's they like would... the first, the only break they really would have for a lot of them in the day. A and you'd of... see them repeatedly, Sharon? Yeah, you had sort of your regulars. <laughs> yeah, yeah it, it was a little like that. Um, you know, it was a very intimate act. It was mostly men that were my customers. They kept their shoe on while I was shining it. So, um, yeah, it was... Um, my mother was very ashamed because I was one of the first people in my family to go to college and then here I am shining shoes. But it was actually an incredibly good time and I'd gone to a women's college so meeting 100 men a week was exactly what I needed. Well, that sounds great. And if people are interested, they can, on your your website, mm-hmm. SharonPomerantz.com, um, there's a there's a, a short video that was actually the NPR mm-hmm. piece, Shoes, and so they can hear more about... The- um, I think... I'm not sure. Is shoes on there? I think what's on there is actually the video promotion for the book where I'm and you can also find it on YouTube as well, um, where I'm talking about my shoe shine experiences um, for about four minutes to introduce. Oh, that's what it is. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Shoes. I'm not sure that that actually is available. Um, I'm not sure it's even available. I think it was too long ago. I hate to say it that they they would have recorded it. Well, anyway, this piece shoes that people could watch is Mm -hmm. really interesting. Mm -hmm. It's like and then, yeah, Mm -hmm. I feel like yeah, it definitely shows. uh, It's me talking more extensively about my about what it was like to be a shoeshine girl and and also how that affected the shoeshine girl that I inevitably wrote into Rich Boy, and and um, yeah, so this is almost like this. You've had this. um, 
like this amazing trajectory too, Sharon, mm-hmm. haven't you? Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, people let's... ask me all the time, is this book autobiographical? Of course it's not because Robert was born in 1947 and I was born 20 years later and he's a man and I'm a woman. And, you know, I, w- I went to a different college and none of the places are the same. I didn't even grow up in Oxford Circle, but it is very emotionally autobiographical, um, you know, about what it's like to be a kid whose parents didn't go to college, who gets to go to a fancy college in New England on scholarship and washes dishes and and you know I've changed the time period I've changed the gender um, you know he also has a real advantage in that he's dropped dead gorgeous and women throw themselves at him I can assure you that men have not thrown themselves at me uh, but so there's or, things that's that the I, next book <laughs> there are things that I have done to him that have nothing to do with me but in terms of that that sense of what it feels like to in a weird way sometimes be undercover you know there's what you come from and then there's the who the the you that's at the cocktail party um that is very much i think emotionally autobiographical and that part of the book i you know is something that i certainly have experienced well thank you so much for being here today sharon thank you and and we're running out of time so um so so let's just um nicola's um, next week on Tuesday, Tuesday, September fourteenth at seven p.m. Seven p.m. and so that'll be a reading and a signing. Mm-hmm. Be, yeah, come with your questions about yeah. Rich Boy. Sure. Um, and then even sooner, this Sunday, the Carytown Book Festival mm-hmm. at three p.m. in the Carytown Concert Hall. Um, I'll be on the historical fiction panel talking about all the research and you know why uh, this book is historical fiction and so. and do you are you currently working on because you mentioned manuscripts that were in drawers as mm-hmm. well so what's on deck right now working on um I'm back in New York in the 70s. I'm, I'm definitely not done with that period. And I'm, I'm interested in my next novel, I think, in exploring something I've explored a lot in short stories. And now I'd like to make into something longer, which is, uh, you know, marriage, to look really inside marriage a, a bit more um, and to look more at intimacy and sexuality in class. Um and, and class. And class. So still class will come into it, too. Looking but in- yeah, but some characters that I've written into sto- stories that I've had published, like Graceland that was in the Missouri Review and um, and The Virgin of Upper Broadway, about a little cast of characters in New York City. And I'm thinking about using them in a novel. So I've been working on that. And that's very much based in New York in the 70s. So I'm not done with New York in the 70s. And maybe a play coming up too do you think i was working on a play but i I find it very hard to do both so that's not i I seem to have dropped it for now so your heart's with the novel at the moment my my heart is always in fiction you know playwriting was always just sort of like a little take break um i admire that the heck out of playwrights i think they're amazing uh, but it's not really my primary art form well and you've got you've got your way with the dialogue in rich boy thank you i love writing dialogue it's a lot of fun it's really the thing i love more than anything well well, thank you so much for being on the program today sharon and and come back again oh happily (laughs) happily Uh, well you've been listening to living writers i'm t hetzel thanks for listening thanks again to sharon pomerantz her novel rich boy until next time
This is Free Speech Radio News for Wednesday, June 27, 2012. In Los Angeles, I'm Dorian Marina. Coming up, the Senate says it will stop federal student loan rates from doubling, but the deal is not yet certain, and student advocates call for more action to address soaring debt and tuition costs. A U.N. report finds Rwanda's military has supported rebels in the Democratic Republic of Congo, bringing attention to the U.S. role in the conflict. Basically, they're providing resources to uh, war criminals who, if given more resources, will commit more crimes. And we'll go to Pakistan, where a military offensive has displaced hundreds of thousands of local residents. Those stories and more coming up after this news. I'm Jess Burns with headlines for FSRN. A final string of primary elections happened in states across the U.S. yesterday. Big-name incumbents, including Democrat Charlie Rangel of New York, kept their seats. In Oklahoma, though, Tea Party-backed candidate Jim Bridenstine defeated five-term Republican Representative John Sullivan, despite Sullivan outspending Bridenstine nearly four times over. In other election news, the first openly gay Republican presidential candidate, Fred Carter, says he's stepping away from his campaign. The announcement comes just a day after he released a video in Utah attacking the Mormon church for their anti-gay stance. We need to stop the suicides and homelessness and once and for all stop the hate. Carter received 